As we continue our seven-part series on the Lord's Supper from Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church, today is our sixth message entitled, The Supper is the New Covenant. A total of seven messages on communion seems like a lot to spend on that topic, but it's been one of the more central and debated topics in church history. Denominations have split over this doctrine and recognize recognizing each other communion is one of the ways that they've healed schisms over the past few decades. Even if we look at the design of this church, we see that communion is central to the architecture and preaching of the word is off to the side, which is true in many denominations. In ours, we reorient teaching and preaching with the centrality of the word back in the center so we can proclaim God's message. As we focus on today's passage in 1 Corinthians 11:25, take yourself back 2,000 years to Jesus' time. It's Thursday, 33 AD, April 2nd. Jesus is about 36 years old. He's been traveling with his disciples for three and a half years teaching the Jewish people about the kingdom of God. On this day, the 12 disciples are gathered with him on a second floor room in Jerusalem, celebrating the Passover meal, to remember God saving his people from the angel of death and releasing them from Egyptian captivity. The Jewish people have been celebrating this meal for over a thousand years. In the middle of the meal, Jesus picked up a cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant, the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. It wasn't the first time the disciples had heard a similar shocking statement from Jesus. During the feeding of the 5,000, he told people that anyone who eats his flesh and drinks his blood will have eternal life. However, the reference to the new covenant might have made them gasp in awe as they considered the implications of his words. By proclaiming the new covenant, Jesus is drawing a line in the sand of time and after over a thousand years, initiating a new relationship with God. Jesus is saying the covenant of Moses, the covenant of the Ten Commandments, has been superseded by something new, something the Jews have been waiting for since Jeremiah prophesied about it over 600 years earlier. The disciples came to celebrate the Passover, and instead Jesus turned a page in the chapter of history, no less dramatic than we think of A.D. and B.C., in our timeline. When this, with this background on the passage, we'll cover three key points today. First, the Old Covenant was inadequate. Second, the Old Covenant is the fulfillment of God's better plan. And third, that we, the church, receive the benefits of the New Covenant during communion. To begin with, the Old Covenant was inadequate because it depended on frail, sinful people to keep it. Throughout biblical history, covenants were key turning points in the story of God and his people. They're mentioned over 200 times in the Old Testament and referenced in two-thirds of the books. Covenants were initiated by God as agreements that governed the relationship between him and a person or group of people. Let me repeat that. Covenants are initiated by God as agreements 
and that govern the relationship between him and his people. These agreements are sovereignly administered by God and established by him, including specific blessings and also included requirements, often, that he mandated that the people would follow, but which couldn't be violated. Only God can initiate a covenant of this kind, and he is solely responsible for establishing the terms of the agreement. He chooses the people. He establishes the rules to be followed. He determines the blessings that will be received. There's no negotiation like we might think of a covenant or agreement or contract that we would have today. Central to the covenants is the exclusivity of it. It's unique to the person or people God chooses and requires that they have complete loyalty back to him. The strongest example of this we have in the first commandment, where God requires Israelites to have no other God before him. The key theme of the covenant is that I shall be your God and you shall be my people. We see covenants with Noah and Abraham, Moses and David that have these characteristics. And God called each of them specifically and promised them unique blessings. To Noah and his descendants, he promised that he wouldn't destroy the earth with water again. He gave Abraham the promise of uh, land and to be the father of many nations. With Moses, the people received the promise of being a holy nation from God. David's promise was the continued kingship in his family line. Though there are many covenants, the Mosaic Covenant and the Ten Commandments is the one specifically described in the Old Testament because God established it with the people of Israel as a group when they were called out of Egypt. This covenant described in the book of Exodus specified how God was to be worshipped through the temple ceremonies and declared that the priests were responsible to intercede for the people's sins. It detailed the need for animal sacrifices as well. This covenant was effectively established at the Passover meal with the blood of the lambs as it was painted on the doorposts and then it was expanded upon at Mount Sinai with more detailed commands. All these elements that God included in the Old Covenant, the sacrifices, the priests, the temple, the laws, they were all expressions of his nature. These practices might seem pretty foreign to us in 2020, but they show us what God is like in a concrete and tangible way. God communicated his righteous law so people could clearly see and know what was good and what was evil. He, he was present with his people and gave them the tabernacle and later the temple to dwell visibly in their midst. He's also holy and separate and could not be directly approached by anyone unholy or impure. So he created barriers in the temple so that common people could not enter and then provided priests to serve as mediators for them. Sacrifices viscerally brought to life the gravity of sin, as one would put his hand on the head of the animal to transfer his sins, and while the animal's throat was cut and the blood poured out. But the old covenant was flawed, and it necessitated a better one. Flawed not because of God, he kept his part of the agreement, not because of his law, which is right and good, the covenant failed because of the other party in agreement, the people, the Israelites. The priests who stood between the people and God were temporal and sinful. These priests died and were replaced each generation. Some were good like Samuel, and some were evil like his sons. 
none could make perfect intercession for the people. Because of their depraved nature, the people broke the requirements of the law as well. The Israelites killed and stole, coveted and followed idols. The patriarchs were failures as well. Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David did not follow God without fail. The ritual sacrifices happened year after year after year because the offerings were inadequate atonement for sin. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away the sins of the people and therefore only served as a reminder of the penalty for sin. All of these things were temporal and inadequate because they depended on frail, sinful people. Yet the elements of the Old Covenant served as the foundation for something better. In Jeremiah 31, which Phil read uh, the, similar, the same passage in the New Testament in Hebrews, Jeremiah prophesied that God would establish a new covenant and write his laws on people's hearts. And I'll, I'll read the same passage again, where Jeremiah said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day, when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and say to his brother, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Return back to the first century in the upper room with the disciples. They grew up with the rigid laws, the ritual sacrifices, the ornate priests, the beautiful temple of, sto of stone and gold. It was the air they breathed. It was all they knew. But they also knew that something new, the new covenant, was coming someday. And then, as they were celebrating God's faithfulness of providing salvation from Egypt through the old covenant, Jesus spoke the words, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. By proclaiming the new covenant, Jesus fulfilled Jeremiah's prophecy from 600 years earlier. With this announcement, Jesus once again laid claim to deity, since only God could establish a covenant. Just like that, the epoch of history was closed and something new was established. This new perfect and final covenant superseded the inadequate Old Testament Mosaic covenant and was the fulfillment of God's better plan, his better plan for the world from the beginning of time. This is our second point. The new covenant is the fulfillment of God's better plan for his people. In the new covenant, once again, God reached into space and time and dictated a new agreement. He built on elements of the old that he established, but made everything better. He provided a better sacrifice, a better priest, a better law, and a better temple. He added a new recipient to the covenant to make it better as well. God provided the better sacrifice as the propitiation for sins through his own son. Jesus said the new covenant is in my blood poured out for you. He was foreshadowing his impending death 
which would just happen a few hours later. Once again, as, as we've repeatedly encountered throughout history, God gracefully provided substitutionary blood sacrifices to his people. He provided for Adam and Eve through the death of an animal to clothe their nakedness with its skins after they ate the forbidden fruit in the garden. He provided a ram to kill in the place of Isaac when he tested Abraham's obedience. He passed over the firstborn Israelites who had the lamb's blood on their doorposts as they prepared to be freed from Egypt and head to the promised land. And now we see the full, ultimate fulfillment of the covenant was planned before the foundation of the world through Jesus and his death on the cross. The final definitive sacrifice made the old covenant system null and void. As Hebrews 10, 14 and 18 tells us, for by a single offering, Jesus perfected for all time those who were being sanctified. And where there is forgiveness, there is no longer any offering for sin. Because of Jesus, it's final, it's completed. There's no need for a sacrifice of atonement over and over and over again with bulls and goats. This is only possible because Jesus lived the perfect life to fulfill the covenant requirements of the law. Jesus is the perfect, sinless, final sacrificial lamb, the better sacrifice. Not only was Jesus the better sacrifice in the new covenant, he was the final, better priest. As the perfect permanent priest, he makes intercession for his people. So there's no longer a need for a human mediator between us and God. As Hebrews 7, 23 to 25 tells us, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But God holds his priesthood permanently. Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus, as the better priest, provides direct access to God the Father. Aaron's sons could now be fired from their jobs as priestly intermediaries because his people could go straight to God for forgiveness. Through Jesus' teaching, he also established the better law. He raised the standard above what was expressed in the Ten Commandments to go beyond our external actions and include the motives of our heart. He taught during the Sermon on the Mount, and on the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, but I say to you, if you're angry with your brother, you're liable to judgment. If you look on a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He also added separately a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Love one another just as I have loved you. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In the new covenant, commandments are no longer external, written on tablets of stone. They're internal to us, written on hearts of flesh, just like Jeremiah prophesied. Through the indwelling of the Spirit, God makes his chosen people sensitive to his commands to help them do the works that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them under the better law. Through the new covenant, a better temple was built at Jesus' resurrection, not one made with stone stuck in a specific location. As Jesus said, destroy the temple and in three days I will raise it up. In him, there's no longer need to worship God in Jerusalem because there's a better temple through his presence 
and the Spirit. We come to Jesus directly to worship and to serve God. All the elements of the Old Covenant were but breadcrumbs. There were signs, there were types, there were shadows pointing to fulfillment in Jesus through the New Covenant, the better covenant that he established. They were given by God to demonstrate the need for and dependence on him. The law provided knowledge of sin to humble humanity by showing our continued frailty and failure. The new covenant was never the backup plan. It was always God's plan because Jesus is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. Through Jesus, perfect humanity, it was the only way God could fulfill the justice, his holiness, demanded for our sin. It was the only way his wrath against covenant breakers could be fully and finally satisfied. Through the covenant, we get a view of God's character, his goodness, his mercy, his love and grace. We see his goodness and love expressed in the design of the new covenant as everything centers on Christ. We understand his mercy as he fulfills the obligations his people never could. We feel his grace as he gives the benefits of Christ's righteousness to the undeserving. Lastly, the benefits of the new covenant to us, the church. In communion, we experience God as the initiator and provider of the new covenant. When we take communion as the new covenant in Jesus' blood, we're reminded that our loving God initiates, he initiates the covenant relationship with us. As I mentioned earlier, the central theme of the covenants throughout the Bible is I shall be your God and you shall be my people. This is exactly how Paul describes the church in 2 Corinthians 6 when he says, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. It's no longer the children of Abraham who are the promised people, but now anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved through a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. The church is therefore the better recipient of the covenant. As Paul explained in Ephesians 3, 6, through the gospel, the Gentiles, the Gentiles, us, our fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. As members of the same body in the local church, we've initiated our own covenant together as well. When we join embassy, we make the following commitment. We do now in dependence upon his spirit earnestly and joyfully renew our covenant with each other. By God's grace, we will walk and pray for unity, walk together in love, meet together, raise our children in the church of the Lord, and so on. John Piper describes a church covenant as God's covenant with us that creates and shapes our covenant with each other. That is to say, the vertical relationship of the new covenant governs our relationship with God and guides the horizontal relationship with each other in the church through the church covenant. As recipients of the new covenant, we have two sacraments, baptism and communion. Baptism happens once to symbolize our new birth in Christ through his death and resurrection. Through communion, we have a tangible, repeated sign of God as our new covenant provider not just a temporary meal that satisfies us briefly, but one that reiterates the good news week after week after week. The good news that he's satisfied with us in Christ for eternity and that we can add nothing, absolutely nothing, to his completed work 2,000 years ago. Communion is the new 
Passover meal, replacing the Jewish annual celebration from the Old Covenant. It's a celebration of his saving work in us, not just once from physical slavery in Egypt, but permanently from the all-consuming slavery of sin in our lives. The Old Covenant condemned, it enslaved, it was a heavy burden to the people, but the New Covenant frees, it brings life through forgiveness and reconciliation. Because of Jesus, the temple veil was torn in two, providing us direct access to Father in ways that are inconceivable at the time of the, the disciples and before them. We have no need to confess to a priest as an intercessor between us and God or to sacrifice an animal for our sins. God provided, God provided for us through the broken flesh and poured out blood of Jesus. If the new covenant is new to you and you're trying to live under the old by keeping the law, you're dead. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. Repent of your feeble effort, feeble efforts to gain God's favor through prayers or donations or service or what might ever be you think is acceptable for him for forgiveness. Then celebrate with great joy what came on Sunday, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, and yours as well, if you put your faith in him rather than your works to save you. In our brief time this morning, we reflected on how the old covenant was inadequate, that the new covenant is the fulfillment of God's better plan, and that we, the church, receive the benefits from God as the initiator and provider of the new covenant through communion. What we're remembering through communion, what we're celebrating by drinking the wine that symbolizes the blood he shed for us, is the final covenant, the perfect covenant that offers us access to the Father through the Son, with the guidance of the Spirit who's been given to us, knowing that God has chosen us to be his people and he our God. In communion, we look backwards to Jesus' institution of the new covenant, yet like those before us, we still await something. We still await the final completion of the new covenant promises through the resurrection of the body, the reuniting with the elect, restoration of the earth, and return of the king. As you prepare to taste the bread and the cup in a moment, reflect deeply on this great God of ours. Reflect on how he had a covenant plan for the church from long ago. Reflect on Christ, who makes this relation possible as the one who fulfills the whole law, offers himself as the perfect sacrifice, assumes the high priesthood, and becomes the great temple of worship for us all. Then taste the new covenant of Jesus' blood and know that he is good. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for the new covenant. We are grateful for Jesus as the fulfiller of that, that you gave your one and only son to die, to wash away our sins. Thank you for that. Thank you for your plan from eternity and your many blessings for us. As we now take the bread and cup, help us to be reminded of that, the value of your blood, the value of your life, who you are and what you've done for us, and let us humbly bow before you in remembrance. In Jesus' name, amen.